is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of scripture. You said people read um, the Song of Deborah wrongly. Is there like one great matzo ball that if you could just like clear that up, they could have better access to what's going on there? Well, wrongly might be a lazy way of saying it. Uh, but I think when we read it, as soon as we recognize that it's poetic, we uh, kind of switch our brains off a little bit and we assume it's kind of highly symbolic. We assume that it is telling us about emotions and we assume that it's telling us about, you know, kind of abstract realities as opposed to concrete details. And occasionally we we just read quickly enough that we don't realize we're getting a lot of historical detail. We're getting a lot of um, battle reports. We're getting a lot of concrete stuff that we actually don't get in prose sometimes even. Uh, and so when we make that brain shift, um, I think we also um, – assume that this is just a celebration um, and it's just kind of something extra that we don't need to understand what God's doing um, and what he has done, etc. Um, so that's one uh, issue that I see with the Song of Deborah. The other is it is really violent. Um, and I think that occasionally we see that violence and we have kind of a visceral reaction to that violence. Um, and we don't kind of follow the text in explaining what that violence is doing and why it's there. Um, So I think those are the two pitfalls I've noticed um, as we come to Judges 5 in particular. I want to come back to that violence in a second, Um, but you remind me that um, the philosopher Eleanor Stump says in one of her books, she just says what we're all thinking. She says, you know, when I read books and people have these epitaphs at the front, you know, it's like some piece of poetry or a lyric, I always skip over them and I never read them. And I just jump straight to the argument. Um, and I, it sounds like you're saying that's, uh, that's, that's a, a reading strategy that we most, uh, most of us have. Oh um, yeah. I mean, students all the time will admit that I've never actually read that before. I always just skip it. I mean, I think we all do that. So getting to the nature of the English printed Bible, so the typesetting of the Bible. Wow, I just got super nerdy, super quick here. Yeah. But are you pro poetic indentation or or do you think it might help to like throw it back into like a, a prose formatting so people don't know that they're hitting poetry until they're too deep in, you know, like make it like a trap right. for them? I mean, I like it. I like it for one reason. I like that it, again, it, it helps us to not fall into that pattern so quickly. But I do think that the visual reminder that we're switching to a new genre probably is ideal as well, because part of reading scripture rightly is reading genres in their, within their context. So I think uh, even just the visual reminder that we are dealing with multiple genres um, mm. is helpful. And I would I would hate to lose that because we're kind of lazy enough thinking about genres when we read scripture that I wouldn't want to perpetuate that. Um, I think I think that's my 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 gut is there. I, I wholeheartedly agree. Although shaking it up with one of those prose readers uh, is not too bad either. Yeah. Um, so you talked about the violence or you mentioned the violence. I, I'm just going to read a little bit. This is probably going to drive you crazy uh, to listen to me reading this, but uh, bear with me. Uh, I'm going to read from the Song of Deborah. 
And this is the part that I really slow down for in class when I read, and I don't have my glasses, so double bear with me. Um, <laughs> this is of Deborah. She says in verse 24, Most blessed of women be Yael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet, he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet, he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Uh, uh, I love this passage because of the next sentence. Out of the window, she peered. And you're like, who, wait, who, there's no windows in tents. What, what's going on here? And you realize they've yeah. jumped scenes on you. Mm-hmm. Um, why is it important, do you think, for the biblical author to include this song of a woman praising not just violence, but kind of horrific violence um, in the hand of this woman, Yael the Kenite? Yeah. Well, the book of Judges is constantly reflecting on the fact um, that Israel's opponents, uh, that Israel's military um, opponents are far superior to them. Uh, they are well allied. They are well fed um, while Israel's hungry. They are hmm. um, well armored. They have more weaponry. Um, Israel is outgunned and outmanned consistently in Judges. And so when we get to Judges 5, um, there's a moment where despite all of those things, uh, we see Israel come. God has routed the Canaanites in Judges 4. Um, The Canaanites being the prototypical kind of military aggressor um, against Israel. Um, And they have successfully um, kind of defeated their iron chariots, which is a, a huge moment. That's even as recently as Judges 1, Iron chariots have been, even for the most faithful of tribes who have done their job the best, they still can't get past this really highly uh, technical or technologically advanced enemy. Mm. Um, And so in this moment, we see a success over that. And this becomes a moment of hope, not just uh, in relationship to this battle, but because of those kind of prototypical elements, uh, it is a, it's a message of hope for the whole the whole season. Uh, And so when we get into this poem, uh, we find Israel consistently reflected as somebody vulnerable, uh, as somebody weak, um, as someone that is the underdog uh, and the enemy, uh, those that they are meeting in battle is consistently uh, rendered as strong. And so when we get to this moment in all of its blood and in all of its gore, Ultimately, we have the defeating of one of the strongest foes um, that Israel had experienced who had um, oppressed them severely and harshly. And in this moment, we see the weakest, um, the the most outsider. She's not only not a warrior, she's a civilian. She's not Israelite. Um, Mm -hmm. She is an outsider in every way, and she is the primary way through which military victory is achieved. And so by sitting in the violence there, it's not to glorify violence. It's not to glorify this horrific death. It is to uh, show that God can overcome the strongest of foes through the weakest of instruments. Uh, And when we put that in contrast to the next vignette, the one you just mentioned about the window, um, in that vignette, we meet Sisera's family, uh, the destroyed hero, and they're sitting around expecting Sisera to come home, having plundered uh, the Israelites and specifically to have captured women as prisoners of war for his own use. Um, and they're described as wombs um, because mm-hmm. their their purpose, of course, is fairly singular. 
And so for one of those very women, one of those uh, very vulnerable women to have been uh, the conqueror, frankly, uh, in the last in the last part of the poem, um, shows that God can use uh, the underdog uh, to do amazing things. And if that's the case with this civilian wife who is able to um, bring a mighty battlefield victory in the quiet of her tent, um, then certainly Israel has reason to hope um, that their ragtag um army is going to be able um, to survive uh, the significant military threats that were before them. That's, that's really good. And um, you, everybody should read this, uh, this poem on their own, uh, maybe even stop now and, and go read this piece of poetry because <laughs> Uh, I, I think it is genuinely difficult when we think about violence. We just think about like all things being equal, it would be peaceful otherwise. And then somebody does something violent to somebody else. And that's how we kind of read the, the Hebrew Bible at least. Yeah. And it really is this kind of, you know, wolves with teeth ready to, to rip through Israel, uh, take no prisoners except for women. And again, that, that womb or two for every man line is just horrifying when you think about what they're actually describing there. Yeah. Um, and so, her hero status is actually probably greater than we could shout in a poem if, if we were one of the Israelites as well. Sure. Um, what, just to state the obvious or ask the obvious, I know a lot of people, well, I, I have students that ask me like, why, like, why don't they just say what they mean rather than using a poem? Now, my answer to that is they are saying what they mean uh, exactly. and they're saying they're saying more than what you think they could mean because they're using poetry. But how do you answer that question? Well, I would say that um, the assertion behind the question is that truth is propositional, um, hmm. meaning that uh, the message that the author is trying to convey is something we can uh, we can express in a sentence or two. Um, that's sort of the way we think. We want bullet points. Um, and so when somebody goes to all the effort of saying all of these things only to say that, you know, we could we could bubble this down to um, God is strong, his enemies mm. are weak, and that could be the end of the day. But something about uh, poetry forces us not just to recognize that propositional truth, but to recognize its implications, uh, to consider its purposes, uh, to recognize exactly what that experience should do um, to make us think differently about God. Uh, by, by writing this in poetry, as opposed to just giving us um, that proposition, we really are listening to what they mean um, not just uh, the truth that we see buried in it. What they mean uh, includes um, some of the uh, the emotional reaction we have. What they mean um, includes some of the portrait that these pictures are, the the pictures that these words draw. What they mean mm. uh, involves this very deep um, metaphorical parallel between these two characters. I think that we occasionally pretend like language is simpler than that. But in the same way that in conversation, our inflections, our hand gestures, uh, the way that we we use our face, all of those things uh, communicate more than the words we say. And that's true of any literature. And so when we take poetry and recognize that it has the ability to say more than the bottom line, uh, we get 
greater illumination. We get to hear more from someone uh, centuries ago. Um, and at the end of the day, that's not an annoyance. That's a gift. Yeah, that's really helpful. Uh, yeah, it's not an annoyance. It's a gift. Um, I think it, it is an annoyance if you're impatient and you think if you you kind of premise all knowledge on that, it can be had easily. It can be reduced down to simple statements. So sure. just get in, get on with it and tell me these statements. Right. Is yeah. the, is the impatience there. Um, but as we had another guest on the podcast said, we need to learn to give the biblical authors the, the gift of our time and attention, um, Absolutely. And po poetry included. Um, well, that's good. I wonder, do you have any techniques for people? Uh, I should also mention you've written an essay for us for the biblical mind on the, the power of the reasoning of poetry that highlights some of these uh, issues. I wonder in like the classroom setting or the church setting, do you have any like parallel literature or movies or, or ways that you get people to like get out of their own head and their own ways of thinking about scripture and diminishing poetry and literature in general? Uh, sure. I mean, I generally, when I teach about these things, I do compare it to contemporary art forms that we engage regularly to kind of help us see um, that all ways of communication have their own sets of rules and all ways of communication uh, have their own demands on the listener. And we are just more comfortable with ours than we are with mm. theirs uh, because mm. they're the ones we engage all the time. Um, and so I often uh, talk about the difference uh, when I compare different uh, Old Testament books, for example, some which are really character driven, like the book of Samuel, for example, mm. um, to something like Joshua, which is a little more action driven, uh, especially compared to something like Kings, which has very minimal character development. Uh, sometimes I, I like to, you know, draw different movies to their attention and recognize that there are different kind of nuances and different um, purposes that each of these movies or kinds of entertainment offer. Uh, even when we look at Joshua and Judges, um, sometimes they can seem really contradictory. Joshua is so optimistic. Uh, Judges mm. has a completely different tone. Uh, Joshua reads like a Marvel movie, uh, whereas um, Judges reads like something a little bit more from, I don't know, Sundance. Uh, it's got a, a little bit earthier of a tone. Um, and it's kind of giving us raw human experiences to shock us into recognizing the truth of matters. Um, so uh, I don't know if that's quite what you were asking, but I do think it's helpful for us to remember that all art forms, and even if we set aside the word art, because art makes us think that something's fluffy and, and right, not right. immediately helpful, but all forms of communication, all media, uh, have their own sets of rules. Um, and we just need to recognize that we're dealing with a new set of rules uh, so that we can appreciate it on its own as opposed to being annoyed that it doesn't follow the same rules as Twitter, for example. Right. Uh, yeah. And so on that note, I, I guess this is Robert Alter. Um, you know, his, his thing is that we need to foreignize people to the text in order to re reintroduce them. Yeah. Um, and I, I wonder, that's a, the, the Marvel, I'm, I'm trying to decide what I want to ask you about. I want to go back to the Joshua Marvel movie versus <laughs> the Sundance Judges. I like that because I, I, it's funny because when I teach, you know, I teach through the uh, introduction to the Hebrew Bible and at Joshua, I stop and go say, okay, for those of you that are emotionally connected to these texts like I am, this is basically the last stop on our tour where there is any good. It's going yes. to be very small <laughs> pockets of happiness from yeah. this point on, but it's going to be, it's going to get really bad. Kind of like, hang on, here we go. Yeah. So, but what, so can you just finish the analogy? Like why, I, I think I know what you you mean by Joshua's Marvel, uh, 
but uh, how do you see that? Yeah. So, I mean, the, one of the common um, kind of observations about Joshua and Judges is that they they both are telling us about the period of Israel settling in the land. They're telling us about um, skirmishes with Canaan, uh, but the view in Joshua is very optimistic. Uh, it's very triumphal. Uh, it, uh, there is a pretty, uh, upbeat soundtrack, uh, if you will. Uh, it's kind of the echoes from the Pentateuch are about generally, I mean, with some exceptions about, um, Israelite obedience, it's reminding them of their mighty things in history. It's highlighting how God is mighty for them now. Um, it's kind of, it's going to end with them saying, okay, guys, this is, you know, we're drawing the line in the sand. Are you with us or are you against us? And everybody's like, we are for you. I mean, it, it, it couldn't be a better movie. Right. Uh, of course, Joshua's being like, eh, you're not going to be, but that's, I was cool. going to we'll say. Joshua's <laughs> response is not so Marvel esque. Yeah, no, like, Joshua, no, you can't. <laughs> well, and Joshua, and that's the thing. When we slow it down, it's a little more Iron Man two and not uh, Avengers. But um, Joshua really does give us hints that all is not rosy if we're paying attention. Um, right. But on on the whole, Joshua has such a triumphal tone. God is fulfilling His promises. Um, and even though the people trip, uh, even though we're going to have Aiken and we're going to have these things happen generally, um, what they've been hoping for, for, uh, at least a generation, uh, if not generations before that, um, is finally coming to fruition, but judges is going to pick up not quite where Joshua leaves off almost before where Joshua leaves off. It's going to borrow all sorts of material from, um, chapters 13 and following in Joshua. Um, and it's going to highlight that which was negative um, in that period that has just been mm. highlighted as positive. Um, and it's going to draw some lines for us, those hints that were in Joshua, it's going to pick up on and highlight and kind of run with them. Uh, and so judges, it won't have a triumphal tone. It'll have a, a very negative tone, but it will use all sorts of literary sophistication. Uh, and that's why the Sundance, um, the Sundance parallels kind of apt. Right. Um, it's going to use all sorts of literary sophistication. Um, and like I said, kind of raw, um, painful details, not um, with the Song of Deborah being one of those, um, all sorts of raw details to kind of shock us into recognizing what's happening on the ground uh, and to help us better interpret um, what went wrong, even in the midst of God's faithfulness, how the people still proved uh, to be unfaithful uh, and kind of draw those two things into sharp relief. That's good. Um, so you are uh, a judge's scholar. That's where you cut your teeth uh, in scholarship. And you're writing a commentary, correct, on judges as well? One on Joshua and one on judges. One on Joshua. Okay. Um, now I'm going to ask you a difficult question, um, mm -hmm. but a fair question, I think. Yeah. Um, when you look into the New Testament, where do you see Josh Joshua and judges um do, do you see the, the, the themes developed there or some of the anarchy or maybe some of the skepticism developed in Judges especially? Do you see anything that resonates or is it like, great, we've moved on with that. That's all that's all gone in the past. And now we're on to baby Jesus and Paul. <laughs> I mean, even Paul, uh, he draws on the wilderness period and the rebellion of the Judges mm -hmm. generation, all sorts of things to kind of build his argument that you guys are really no different. Um, in the same way that Israel had had, you know, experience after experience hearing from God, 
um, and still managed to find time to question um, his sovereign reign. Uh, we too do that. So there's that. But as the the skepticism, I mean, Hebrews sort of accentuates that for all of Joshua's triumphs, nothing was done yet. Uh, hmm. And so even in Hebrews with it's not doing what Judges is doing, but even it is saying that something is left unfinished in Joshua. So it echoes Judges in that capacity and shows us that Joshua wasn't the end, uh, that there was more to come. Judges is kind of the connector. It tells us why, why there's more to come um, and kind of helps us understand the the depths of human depravity. It's a little bit of the early part of Romans, I guess. Uh, and even in Romans where we have Paul talk about um, God kind of handing people over to their own sin nature and those sorts of things. I mean, that's what Judges is. It's the story of, of what that looks like on the ground um, in, in a significant scale. Um, judges actually feels really eminently applicable to me um, as we talk about the way that we as a society are tainted, we as the church are tainted. Um, occasionally we start thinking the world's getting worse and worse and and, mm. and we have no precedent for what we're seeing. And I kind of want to be like, have you read Judges recently? We've got all <laughs> sorts of precedent for what we're seeing. Um, yeah. I'm rambling a bit, but yeah. So I guess I see it in all of those places. Um, I mean, Hebrews is a funny example because, of course, Hebrews also has something very positive to say about the time of the judges, uh, where there were moments of faith amidst all of that turmoil uh, and chaos and um, kind of negative portraits. Um, okay, so let's just get you. You raise the issue, so I'm going to go there. Okay, let's do it. Uh, what What do we do with the, what I would call the vegetalization of judges, um, <laughs> where Samson is this hero somehow um, who we should want to be like? somehow i'm still not sure how that one turns out but i was a children's pastor for eight years full time yeah. and uh and uh the sunday school curriculum surrounding the book of judges is almost as horrifying as many of the scenes in judges yes. um so i guess i wonder what what do you do i'm sure most many of your students come into the class with that all of that packed into their kind of social cultural consciousness so mm -hmm. what do you do with that i mean does it say that he's a hero that needs to be emulated? Uh, I guess I would I would question that kind of poor reading of Hebrews, frankly. Um, what it actually says is, um, you know, time will fail me to tell of all these people. What did they do? Through faith, they conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouth of lions. Um, they were made strong out of weakness. They were made strong out of weakness. Uh, that is what Judges is about. Judges is about weak people, um, at, at least at the beginning. The triumphal stories mm. in Judges are about weed pe weak people being made strong. The end of the book of Judges is about how even the strongest people are only strong because God made them so. Uh, and so... Mm. Hebrews actually says exactly that. These are people who had at least an, enough faith that God could do amazing things through them. And so I kind of look to Hebrews and say, I'm glad it mentioned Samson, uh, because if he can work with Samson, I have all sorts of faith that he can work with me. Uh, right. So I guess I would just want to recontextualize what we're actually seeing in Hebrews. And that is that it's not strength and might and all of these things. It's faith. Um, and judges would agree. Faith is what brings salvation. It is God who brings salvation. It is not what we do or how strong we are or what we have to bring to the table. So I think the two agree more than we acknowledge. Yeah. And I think the, um, the complexity of 
the complexity of the characters that you can have somebody who is both the spirit of God comes on them and they do things uh, for the sake of Israel, but they can also be ultimately a bad person, like, a, like someone we wouldn't want to be friends with or that we would be praying for constantly. Right. Sure. That those can sure. both be true. Um, yes. in some, some very real life gritty way. Like it's almost as if I really know people in these situations. Yeah. It's almost like that. Well, and I think that that's one of the reasons I really love the story of Gideon because Gideon really dives into just how complex this character is. I mean, half the time, we're not sure whether we're supposed to like him or hate him. Mm -hmm. Uh, Eventually, the narrator makes it really clear about his downfall, but he's also the (laughs) only person in Judges that worships. Uh, So he is complex. Um, Worships, like the official Hebrew word for that. Uh, There are other people who, you know, do cultic things. But I mean, we have examples like Kings and Chronicles, uh, for example, with the stories of Manasseh or with Hezekiah or with Josiah, who in one of those books um, are straightforwardly a great king, um, period, or a terrible king, period. But Chronicles pushes back on that. It talks about Mm -hmm. repentance. It talks about character arcs. And it reminds us that the stories we're getting are intentionally selective because the author's telling a story. They are not saying there's all there is to say. And so every now and again, another part of scripture picks up on part of the life that we don't have record of elsewhere. And we just have to trust that they're speaking of the real complex characters that we only get to know when we read the canon in its entirety. So speaking of complex characters, would would you... Sorry, I'm just now. I'm just picking your brain at this point. Uh, would you classify Joshua as a complex character or more of a flat character? Joshua, uh, I mean, okay. So let me add some. I'm going to complicate the two categories you gave me. Um, following Berlin and other people, uh, mm-hmm. I like to kind of not just talk about. Um, kind of round and flat or round and complex, but to talk about fully fledged versus kind of a type, Mm -hmm. somebody who we only know one or two things about them versus somebody who's more complex. Joshua, I actually think is a, is maybe a type, but he is a lot more flat than other biblical characters. Um, We don't get a lot of his inner life. Um, We don't know, um, about, uh, we don't get his dreams. We don't get a lot of that other characterization we get elsewhere. We don't, uh, very frequently at least hear about his emotional state. Uh, he is most frequently painted as the successor of Moses. That's the way in which he's almost kind of typified. Uh, he's just telling us what it looks like to, uh, be an obedient successor in many ways. Uh, the obedient leader of Israel is kind of who he ends up being in, Uh, Joshua. And there are other places like Judges is going to talk about how he left some people um, that still need to be conquered. And I'm not sure whether that casts him as obedient or disobedient. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm one of the people, I'm of the opinion that there is very little kind of outward criticism of Joshua or even just kind of insight into his character at all Mm -hmm. um, in Joshua. Instead, we are just told that he was doing what he said and Israel seems to be much more evaluated in the book of Joshua than Joshua does. Yeah. And I mean, now that you said it, it seems like we know more about Caleb as a person than we do about Joshua in the end. Exactly. Yeah, that's and that's what I would say. There are other leaders that we get a lot more insight into. So at least comparatively, he is not as round as many other kind of Israelite heroes. So everything that you have just said um, seems to entail 
a, a singular principle behind it, that attending to the literary nature of scripture, and by that I mean what poetry does differently from parable, from, uh, from historical record, um, really does kind of determine the theological impulse you're going to derive from that text. Um, do you see, like, state of the church, uh, do you see that people in the church understand this, get this, or do you see this as something where, like we're still trying to teach them that the, that the structure of the literature matters? Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely would say the latter, uh, that we're still trying to teach the church a lot, uh, the church a lot about the literature itself. I think that in church, uh, in in the contemporary church, we're doing a lot of work just trying to convince people that scripture um, is is something special, is different than other books. Uh, mm. And so our emphasis often lays there. We're trying to prove to people that this has more to say than a book you pick up on the shelf. So we highlight what's special about it. We highlight the fact um, that the you know, uh, at least the way most of us talk about it, that God has inspired it and, and is speaking through it. Um, and so we set it aside as the special thing on purpose for good reasons. Um, but then uh, we need to correct that. Uh, occasionally the pendulum swings just way too far that way. And it becomes this kind of mystical, weird thing that we don't know what to do with that we read in a way we would never read another book. Uh, and we forget just kind of the basics about uh, what good reading entails. And so I do think the church needs that secondary reminder that, sure, this is a book that we believe God had um, something to do with writing. We believe that um, we believe all of those things. However, we also believe that he used humans in that endeavor and that they used human ways of writing, uh, just like any other human author you would read. And so we also need uh, not just a theological sensitivity, but a literary prowess uh, as we come to the scripture, uh, so as to um, uh, really understand all that it's attempting to say. Dr. Michelle Knight, thank you very much for joining us on the Biblical Mind podcast. No, absolutely. It's my pleasure. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.